Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today we have Jesse Manis, Man, okay, I've been working on this, Jesse. No, I'm going to say it right. Manisto. 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 Yes. I know. It's so funny. I was in the shower today going, you're going to say it right. I don't know why I get tongue tied with your last name, but Manisto. Damn. No one ever gets it right. So don't, don't feel bad. No, it's, no. This is important Finnish, to me. This so is not Italian. <laughs> you know, these things are important. I mean, particularly like you know, with me speaking Chinese, like I really like when people botch names, it gets, it makes me angry. And and for some reason, I always get tongue tied on people's last names. But anyways, okay, so I got it right. Yeah. And Jesse, Jesse <laughs> is the editor and founder of the Third Factor magazine. And she's going to tell us a little bit more about that and about the theory of positive disintegration, which is what we really want to learn more about. But the first question is, did anyone bring anything to drink for our conversation today, Jesse? Well, I just have water right now, but I just finished a Moroccan mint tea, so. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. I love Moroccan mint. I love Moroccan mint tea. I just want to say for the record, I just have water right now, so, um, but that's like my favorite. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a funny thing. Like, I thought for some reason that our podcast was an hour ago and I got on and I went and poured myself a glass of wine. And then I realized that my timing was off and I was like, well, someone's got to drink that. Now, so, now I have to ask you, what kind of wine is it? Well, it's a Pinot Noir. Oh, okay. It's, a, it's, it's my boring normal, but I'm on glass two because over the past hour I had to drink that because I couldn't just sit there. That was like dumb. Yeah, so, right. so yeah, I'm going to be very animated for our conversation today wow, um, so or very confused. We'll see whichever one <laughs> with that said. Jesse, tell us a little bit more about you, Third Factor Magazine, and then tell us what is the theory of positive disintegration, and we will ask you questions from there. Yeah, well, that's a huge question, so I will, we'll save that one for the end. Okay. Uh, and my, who am I? Um, well, I have followed a really winding path um, through life, and basically, I, but the short version is I'm a writer, I'm self-employed. Uh, I used to work for the CIA, which we probably won't talk about that much, but that's the path I come through. I wasn't a trained intelligence analyst. I like asking questions and trying to get to the truth of things. Uh, but yes, now I'm self-employed. It's it's a better path for someone who wants to be creative and and develop things, which is what I really want to do. And one of the things I have worked on developing is Third Factor Magazine, which was sort of supposed to be a side project for me as I try to do this sort of self-employed creative life. And it has grown and is now one of the major things I do with my time, though it doesn't pay as well as my other clients do. Uh, but people people love it because it it fits, I think, the the, the zeitgeist that we're in right now. And and so um, I love working on it and I love the people I connect to through it, such as yourselves, um, you know, through the Institute for Liberal Values, which Third Factor is a member of. But it is basically, in a nutshell, it is a magazine that is founded in this thing called the Theory of Positive Disintegration, 
uh, created by Kazmierz Dombrowski, if I'm saying his last name right. I finally heard it from some Polish speakers at the Dombrowski conference, but Dombrowski, people will, will just say, um, if you're hearing it spoken for the first time, Dombrowski. He died in 1980, so it's, it's, it's an old theory. There are people trying to bring it back to life right now, and I'm outside of academia, but I guess I'm one of those people because I think it speaks, like I said, it speaks to our time. In a nutshell, I would say that the theory of positive disintegration is about this intense and painful, but ultimately healthy process of sorting out what your true values are. Uh, and recognizing why and how you are not living up to them and then trying to live up to them. So it's, it's that, it's a certain developmental pathway that not everyone follows, but maybe incorrigible questioners will follow it because you're constantly, you know, why am I doing this? Is this the right path for me? Am I, um, am I doing right by this or that value? And um, are the values that I was told I should hold truly the values I should hold? So that's what it's all about. Hmm. I think that's a good place. I'll, I'll leave that definition there. Now, what else would you like to hear about it? Because <laughs> I can well, ramble on. <laughs> there's so much, I guess one of my big questions is, you said that he, you know, he was a writer in the 1980s. Why now? Well, he, he died in 1980. Okay, so this has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Why is it, for you and for Third Factor Magazine, making a comeback? today like what is it that is important as a bellwether I don't know if that's the right word but as a indicator of of our current like kind of cultural moment if you will yeah well personally and not everyone who is drawn to it will be drawn to it for this reason but I find it appealing and useful because of this culture war that we're in where we have more freedom to decide what our values are than ever before. Um, you can always find your tribe. You just go online and you Google this or that and you find people who agree with you. So we're always getting bolstered in what we believe, but we're also being pitted against people who, who think otherwise and we have to defend what we think uh, or, or retreat and just, you know, defend whether we're defending to ourselves or defending to other people and getting in fights. I mean, the internet, you throw the internet in and that has just changed everything. It is causing, uh, basically, personally, I think it has caused a a breakdown in a lot of um, our social structures, our social norms. I mean, I know I'm not alone in thinking that, right? We've got all of these people, the Facebook papers being released. It's so we have a force in the world that is causing a, a disintegration. And Dabrowski, who was born, uh, I didn't check this, I think it was 1902, so he lived for most of the 20th century, was a very young man during World War One, or, you know, a, a, you know, an adolescent, and then uh, was still a, a youngish adult in World War Two. He had a, he was going to become a musician, and he had a friend who was in a conservatory who actually ended up taking his own life because of his intense emotions, you know, mental uh, distress of the type that artists are unfortunately, uh, you know, sort of prone to. I think that's uh, maybe folk wisdom that has a little bit of truth in it. And so his path was diverted. He became a psychiatrist instead. And he's living, this is in Poland, like he's living under the Nazis and then under the communists. And he is seeing all of these different, you know, uh, 
let's say faux utopian or I mean people who people will fault the utopians right for always going off on dangerous paths <laughs> that's a common criticism of uh you know some of the people who have these lofty utopian ideals right now I will not get into the details I'll just say the psychological realm where that happens right um that Dabrowski wanted to know who are the people why why are the, there people who will hide in Germany hide a Jewish person in their basement what is the fabric that you know drives someone to risk their life in that kind of social condition versus the sort of person who will just you know go along with what's happening in society and um you know that that's what he lived through and that made him start asking these questions seeing in his own life his friend uh commit suicide and also seeing this happen on a social level. Now, I'm not the sort of person who will say, oh yeah, and we're there right now, you know, but, uh, you know, people faulting uh, metaphors and, and analogies to the cultural revolution in China, whatever, I'm not saying that, but with the upheaval we have, with this new technology, with the way we're pitting ourselves against each other in new ways, that is why I think some of these concepts from this theory are really useful. I can describe some of those concepts, but I'll pause. Like, you—is this making sense? Yeah, let's <laughs> yeah, describe some of those concepts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, some of the ones I really like. I think, uh, as an introduction to the theory, is something called positive maladjustment. Being maladjusted is not generally something we think of as good, right? You know, you want to be well, well adjusted. Mm -hmm. Well adjusted is the the psychological aim that you're you're going for, but. Um, in positive disintegration, Dabrowski posits that there's, you can be positively and negatively adjusted and positively and negatively maladjusted. And given this environment where we can find people who always agree with us and always affirm us, I think that's a really useful question to ask. Am I really positively maladjusted or am I deluding myself? And so you, you harness this trait that you have, which is to ask questions, which may be what put you in that positively maladjusted camp to begin with, what may have made you find this niche contrarian group. I'm a little bit of a contrarian, you know, I'll, I'll admit that. I, I ask those questions and annoy those people. You gotta check yourself, right? Before you get that emotional validation of like, yes, I found my people and we all see things the right way and all those other people are wrong. Are you really positively maladjusted or not? And so you you have there are some other concepts where you, in the theory, where you try to figure that out. Another one is this process of hierarchization of values. I know these are like super jargony, but they're really, they're basic. They're just in jargon. And the hierarchy, hierarchization process is making more concrete uh, and explicit what your values are and then putting them in a hierarchy, right? Um, I talked about the, the, the utopian impulse and maybe part of the reason that that becomes uh, it runs away with people is they haven't really sorted out this value versus that other value. They both sound good, but maybe there are trade-offs. And so you can make that an intellectual exercise, but I think um, another, oh, okay. So a salient detail about me is I, I was in an activist group. I was a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And I found so much of this raw material of, of, this type of person, um, and I started talking about these concepts. Okay, what's our hierarchy of values? You know, is are we really, are we positively maladjusted to this? Okay, that sounds like it's a good thing, but 
how do we know? And those those concepts sort of helped facilitate some conversations. Now, some with, with, with individuals, I never introduced it like organization wide, but I found it very useful for trying to chart what we should be working on as activists. And, and for me, ultimately, I, I left uh, activism because they didn't quite scale up. But so that's that's some of the, the concepts. Um, there is one other one, and it's this thing called overexcitability, which is just the raw material of, of this sort of person. I saw a lot of overexcitability in activist circles. According to the theory, this overexcitability or super stimulability, it's kind of related to the concept of being the highly sensitive person that Elaine Aaron worked on um, separately. They're kind of talking about the same thing. But this, this super stimulability where you react more strongly to a, a, you know, a news event or to something that you learned, you become more curious, you have stronger feelings. Dabrowski said it, it can manifest in any of five domains, the intellect, the imagination, the emotions, the psychomotor realm, and the senses. So you're just getting more that you have to process, that you're taking in. And that's why if you're emotionally overexcitable, then you might be the sort of, like if you're a kid and you cry because you watch the news about a school shooting and, you know, I mean, a lot of people probably cry about that, but you know, that's, that's what I'm talking about with emotional overexcitability and the intellectual overexcitability that drives you to ask the questions and be like, but wait, but why is this true? I want to know more. I don't want to be deluded. And then the imagination where you can envision other worlds and you ask, but why don't we live in that world? And it, and it's, you're so stimulated by it that you are driven to do these sorts of things and maybe see how you might be positively maladjusted. I'll leave that there. I'm, I, I can ramble on about this. It's, it's interesting. I might have to, I might have to apply that. As Jennifer knows, I speak a lot about Jewish debate culture. Okay. And, um, and I'm writing a piece on this right now and I've been working on it for a while. And um, you know, it, really comes down to the fact that there is a certain kind of persona. It's sometimes associated with Jews, but obviously, I mean, I have a, probably two of them on this podcast right now, two non-Jewish people who who are also sort of non-conformist in a lot of ways and and um, and who who don't um, fit into these categories neatly. and and sometimes, they can you can sort of suffer a certain fate be, um, among your sort of tribe because people want you to sort of toe the party line in every every case and you don't you say I'm sorry but I don't agree with that and you're willing to stand up in fact you might not even be able to help it um, you know in, yes. in my case and I've heard <laughs> Brett Weitenstein talk about this as well he said why did I do what I did with Evergreen he goes I've been thinking about that for years. Um, and he said, because I had no choice. I, that's just how I'm constituted. And I've come to believe that about myself. And maybe that is what you would call positive maladjusted. It may have just maladjusted. I don't know. But um, <laughs> but um, I, I, I think it's an interesting concept that we don't really look at enough is that it's a critical aspect of of a liberal society requires naysayers, requires people to dissent, requires people to say, wait a second here, that may be wrong. I don't care if everybody is have is supportive of it. And, and I'm wondering if we, it sounds like you, that's something that you guys have sort of named already. And it's, it's sort of central to your concept. And maybe we all need to start talking about that more. That's exactly right. That's you are talking about precisely the sort of person that I am trying to reach out to on the internet and trying to draw together because and now it, it's gotten to the point where 
you know, if I bring all the contrarians together, I might have to start writing articles about like, okay, let's understand why not everyone can be a contrarian because that would just lead to societal disintegration. But yes, I mean, that is exactly my type of person. Brett Weinstein at, at Evergreen is a perfect example. And I totally get what you're saying. Like, I can't help be this way. So why don't I just try to make sure that I'm doing it the best way that I can? And I guess I have to figure it out for myself because it's an unusual way to be just, you know, again, because the world, our, our evolutionary pattern, perhaps, if you're an evolutionary mm-hmm. psychologist, it just isn't going to produce that many people like this. But it, but we need right. some or we're going to go off a different cliff. And the question is, how, how tolerant is society toward people who play that role? You know, I think maybe a healthy liberal society has a much higher degree of toleration of people who do that than an unhealthy, illiberal society where where that type of personality might be persecuted. And what I worry is in this current ideological environment in the U.S., um, more and more, um, the people like us are sort of the canary in the coal mine. We become targets of a more and more restrictive conversation a more and more restrictive political ethos. And I think that's really where things are getting off the rails. I think that's precisely uh, what, I mean, that's what I'm seeing as well. Um, we, we did an issue on um, the, the rise in gender dysphoria in teenagers, which is of course a, a radioactive topic, but we tried to do it with sensitivity and talk to you know, someone who is happily transitioned and also someone who detransitioned. And it's that's that one we started with that uh, controversial topic. I'm sure we'll do other controversial topics, but we started with that one because, interestingly, of these, uh, it's usually you know biological females transitioning to be transgender men and maybe transition detransitioning whether they do or not. But you have to look then at what is the role of being a contrarian intellectual if you're female. You know, that's hard enough for men, but what women have maybe arguably, like that's a separate thing we can argue or not, but maybe get a little more penalized for not being, you know, taking care of people's feelings and instead asking annoying questions. So I've, I've met some of these detransitioners mm. and they say, oh yeah, that was, that was why I thought I might do better as, as a boy. And so just asking that question, I bring that up there not to go off on that tangent, but just to say like, it it is really hard to be this sort of questioner. And then why, like, what is it that makes us be those sorts of questioners? And then how can we do it in a way that is seen as, hey, I'm trying to look out for this, this important, like, I also care about these people. But instead, we're painted as like, oh, you're bad, because you're not affirming them. And, and, And you can do that, you can apply that to so many issues, right? Oh, you're bad, because you're not towing the party line. Um, whether it's about, you know, oh, I'm criticizing Trump because I'm a Republican and and he doesn't, you know, represent these conservative values. Well, those people will, you know, they're they're also being a little bit contrarian and asking questions that they are they're trying to protect the conservative movement as they see it and their conservative values, and they'll get thrown out because because we just and I think that has something to do with again uh, a time where we all feel insecure. The world feels. Uh, heightened heightened danger with the pandemic, with uh, the way that Facebook is promoting, uh, you know, that that came out in the Facebook papers that if it has an angry an angry reaction, then the algorithm will will promote that to drive engagement. And so everyone's feeling a little more on edge. What 
whatever their belief is. And so, um, you know, we, we're, we're, more, we're more drawn even to our groups, I think, because we're so anxious. When we're anxious, we want to retreat to our groups. Even the contrarians are retreating to their contrarian groups, which break down because they're contrarians. But yeah, we need, we need contrarians. We need them out there being accepted members of larger groups and say, you know, you use the term canary in the coal mine. We have an article with that title, the canary in the coal mine. Um, so it's, it's definitely something we hear often. So let me ask you, like, is it as simple to say, I think I'm, I'm making it too simplistic. So, so walk me through this. If you're just someone who questions, if yeah. you're just someone who says, you know what, I'm not going to go with the herd is what I'm hearing you say, then in some ways you are a part of this positive disintegration, whether you know it or not. Is that too simplistic? I mean, what, what, what really are the steps for you to go through to have that enlightenment, if you will, or that positive disintegration? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, that's, that's the key question. And I don't feel like I've answered it to my satisfaction myself, but at least the process, uh, right, is out there. So, okay, I'm not going to go with the herd is a first step. That is maladjustment. Your next step is, is it positive or negative maladjustment? And so, because this theory posits that you come in with overexcitability, which includes of the emotions, you got to start exploring that. You got to, if you're not seeing a therapist, you got to do that for yourself. Autopsychotherapy is a term in the, in, that Dabrowski uses. You've got to probe your motivations and why. Why are you being contrarian? Are you being contrarian because, you know, your mom didn't love you enough as a child? That's possible. That is something you've got to grapple with. What, where is your anger coming from and why are you taking it out on this? particular issue do you just are do you just dislike these people for some reason and so you're not going to think what they think you know the archetype of that is the kid who wasn't popular and a lot of us were not we were nerds we were weird you know so you you're you're sick of all the the kids all like this thing that you think's really dumb whatever the latest the popular thing is so you're like well I don't like that thing and so then you over uh generalize to think whenever something is popular I don't like that thing that's popular. And that's an error in the wrong direction. That's becoming the, the negative, like negatively maladjusted contrarian. And that's why you have to ask yourself again, what are my emotions a response to? And what's my hierarchy of values? Oh, everybody likes this thing, uh, this other thing. And I don't see any reason to dislike it. In fact, it's fun. My own personal story of that is how I became a fan of, uh, I'm from Detroit. I live in DC right now, but uh, when I was a teenager, the, the Detroit Red Wings were doing really well. I, I still have pictures on my wall uh, of, of the Red Wings because that reminds me of a thing that I belonged to that was really happy and fun and everyone was having a good time. And I'm like, I don't like sports. Sports are dumb. I'm a nerd. Like, but everyone's having a good time. And I was also invited, my friend, some of my friends went to join a soccer team and they didn't invite me. It was, it was not, it was not, you didn't have to try out. It was just a recreational thing and I'm like why didn't you invite me I don't like you didn't think you'd want to play soccer you were you like nerdy things like I'm gonna play soccer with you so I I joined the team I was terrible but I had a great time and that they were all you know because they were into sports they all got into the Red Wings and the Stanley Cup champions they were winning back championships they were winning back in the 90s and I'm like everyone's having fun with this everyone's so happy why would I why would I pick on that and I, I think maybe for people who are inclined to be that kind of contrarian, you've got to have that, it helps to have that kind of experience where you realize, 
why would I, why do I need to rain on this particular parade? Maybe I need to rain on this parade, but why, why or why not? The, the, the experience of positively joining a movement or actively refraining for a good reason. That for me, I come back to it, it's a fun, silly story, but it, it was when I learned that it's not, you don't necessarily have to reject what, the, what everyone else is doing. Mm. Yes. And 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 I guess the yeah I guess the quite it seems to me that people who are positively maladjusted they still join tribes right it's oh, not yeah. like that they don't yeah. yeah it's that they they're more willing to they're more willing to stand up against sort of groupthink and pronouncements and so forth but they're it's not that they that they're completely without a tribe they may join another tribe that help reinforce them or give them protection. Um, and that they can bandwagon against sort of the um, the excesses of a certain group, but you know that I guess that also makes us susceptible, even if we're positively maladjusted, to the group thinking our own chosen tribe. After that, um, you know, none of us are completely um, are completely immune to that type of thinking. Um, how do you think about that? How do you think about? Um, or how does Dabrinsky, if I, Dabrinsky, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry if I just bastardized that, I'm sure I did, um, think about the idea that, you know, we, even those of us who are willing to be, uh, are positively maladjusted and willing to sort of express that in the world, how does, how does he think about them and their own susceptibility to group think? Well, um, it may be in Dabrinsky, I can't remember exactly how he would answer it, but how I would answer it after reading and thinking about all of his, the components of his theory is, is just, you know, we, you've got to, if you can't ask your, you can't rely on only yourself, you have to ask other people. You can't become so independent that you never hear other people's, what they're saying to you. There is a concept that Dabrowski came up with that I would use. It's something, the jargony term is subject object in oneself. And what that means is kind of seeing yourself as others see you, that is objectively treating yourself as an object, but on the flip side also seeing others as subjects in themselves, trying to access their subjective view. So it is this sort of, you know, you know it, it keeps you from totally pulling out of the group because you do need a group. I, I, I'm saying that myself, again, that's, that's not something I read in, in Dabrowski, but I think it's implied in the existence of, he talks about responsibility, empathy, and the subject object ideal. And so that to me has a, a certain pro-social um, acknowledgement that humans are ultra-social beings and we do need to belong. And therefore contrarians will find other people who, sh who came to the same conclusions and Usually, if you're a contrarian, in, in my experience, um, they, they're, they're onto something. They have come up with an important observation. Whether their conclusions are correct or not, it, if we can acknowledge, we in the, like now I'm saying we in the mainstream can acknowledge that this person who we disagree with nevertheless has, has brought up an important piece of data that we need to consider, um, then that, that would be useful for us. And also would keep them from going off and joining, you know, QAnon or whatever the conspiracy is, because that conspiracy theories, uh, they seem to thrive where there's really low social trust or trust, low trust in institutions. Um, and so 
and they're accessible to everyone now with the internet, because again, you can just go find someone who shares your belief and then you get that emotional validation from having your, your, your legitimate concern acknowledged. And so suddenly you start trusting everything that those people say. And because you are, even though you're a contrarian, you need your tribe, you found your tribe. Um, we, I, I wish that people who are in positions of power and authority elected or otherwise, you know, in influence would, would take seriously the concerns that are raised rather than just writing them off as part of another tribe. Um, you know, I, I, you hear about like with the COVID vaccine, I'm very pro COVID vaccine, but I, I understand why people don't trust the, the necessarily the, the medical establishment. I, I, I think they should. I think the establishment is trustworthy, but we have to understand what the motives are for people not trusting. And unfortunately, there's that's not a very satisfying answer right now because we need to solve, the pandemic is happening right now, people are dying. Mm. But but to prevent the next one, right? To For the next pandemic, we need to, I really wish we would work on trust and acknowledging people's or addressing people's the, the foundations of their their deficits of trust that are bringing them that are making them contrarians. Yeah, you know, I'm like you. I'm 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 vaccinated. I even got my booster. You know, I'm completely. I believe in science. I have to say that I become less trusting of public health institutions. And I recently had an article just this last week in Ariel about this. That um, one thing that really hit me is that. Public health institutions are engaged in risk management, and what they've done over the past for many, many years is sort of um, tell noble lies to people that try to get them to behave better and in ways that don't uh, that don't endanger the larger population, and that has always worked. But all of a sudden, you hit the pandemic, and um, and all everybody's paying attention, and everybody's can follow, you know whoever they want on Twitter and YouTube and, and what have you. And they're now able to get information that, that, that can show that public health officials were not telling the truth at certain times or exaggerating certain claims in order to get certain public health benefits. I think that's really undermined the, the standing of these officials. Now, that doesn't mean we have to all become scientific ignoramuses and pretend like they don't have, they're not, they're completely um, out of sync with the science. They're not, but they've, but they're, but I think that that instinct on the part of certain officials has gotten us off track. I know I've sort of gotten us off track in this conversation, but, um, <laughs> You know, I, I feel like, um, you know, that that that, there, that we've got to sort of um, figure out how to reestablish the trust of institutions that have really taken a taken a beating in the past year and a half, not just public health institutions, but especially public health institutions. And that means that they have to be so truthful all the time. Yeah. They have to go bend over their back and make sure that they're constantly giving us just the science and not sort of taking certain liberties on the science in order to get certain health behaviors um, because uh, they'll just get raked over the coals as they have been. Yeah, absolutely true. There's the internet has made the noble lie less tenable than ever. Less uh, noble. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I understand the motivation uh, trying to get yes. people to just go along with things, but it's, it's not going to work anymore. It's not going to work anymore. And they're still doing the same thing because that's how they've always done it. 
Um, you know, the, I'll tell you just a little, I'm, I know we've gone uh, digressed a little bit, but um, w- what really hit me in the beginning of the pandemic was there were people who were comparing COVID to the flu. And this seemed outrageous to me from the very start. Like, of course, that's the uh, COVID deaths are much higher than the flu deaths. But it turns out that, uh, that, that the CDC has been exaggerating flu deaths by a factor of four for a long, long time. They've been they've been using an algorithm that completely exaggerates flu deaths because they want people, you know, to go get their flu shot and wash their hands and do all the things that will minimize the flu. So they so they say, oh yeah, you hear like 50,000 people died of flu. It's actually probably more like 12,000. And and so that was fine until we had COVID and everybody started comp- comparing flu deaths to COVID deaths. And, and it actually took the wind out of the sails of those public health officials that were trying to get people to behave differently during COVID. So again, I think that, that that there are, you know, lots of examples like that where what we used to do no longer works. And our institutions have to be just so above board. Yeah. I was that and person, I, by the way. I was like, it's just a <laughs> flu. Come on. And then I was like, oh, maybe it's not Okay, and 650,000 yeah. deaths later. You know? Okay, it was at the beginning, all right? <laughs> well, we didn't know anything, you should have th- right? We didn't know each other. You should have Facebooked me and I would have told you you were off base. <laughs> but... Um, Uncertainty just brings out the worst in us. And, but we, but we have to know that, and by the worst, I mean fear, which is justified, yes. but, but we have nothing to fear, but fear itself, right? It's a quote that stands the test of time. And, but fear is gonna make people, if, if you seem to be lying to them about something that is emotionally charged, you're gonna lose their trust forever. You know? Right, right. I think that's so, what happened. And we're in a very, we're in a very dangerous, as Jonathan Ross would say, epistemic environment. That is, we're in, a, we're in an environment in which nobody trusts any source of information anymore. So as a result, everybody's creating their own sources. And that that's that's so dangerous for our society in the long run. And so, you know, yeah, of course, like if you go on the far right, you know, nobody's credible there, but there'll be people who latch onto those narratives. And of course, the same on the far left. And we we're desperate for people we can trust. And, you know, so when Dr. Fauci says, oh, yeah, I told everybody that the herd immunity numbers were at a certain level, but I was just trying to get them to start to uh, behave better. And once they did, um, I upped those numbers. Well, you've just undercut your entire, uh, you know, your, your entire credibility because of that. Um, I'm sure he regrets doing that, but it's a little late. Now no one trusts him. Or not no one, but a lot of people don't trust them. Those are the people you really it, yeah. need to, to trust it. So I, you know, it's 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 fascinating, and we're in a very interesting place, and we need people that can learn how to tell the truth and reestablish the credibility of our institutions and society. So, um, yeah. question on this idea of truth, actually, um, it seems to me, and maybe I'm misunderstanding you, so so correct me where I, I might be wrong, is that trust. The, the, you you mentioned QAnon, and I, I want to kind of go there, right? Because some people would say, by the way, we've are, we've discussed positive disintegration. The QAnon, they're like, we don't trust this. We're going to speak out. We're 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 you know not happy with the, the conversation. And in some ways, depending on how they saw themselves, they could say, I'm positively maladjusted. Like I'm 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 looking for the truth. I don't believe you know and. So I don't, where does, I guess that's one question in and of itself. Like, what does it mean to be positively, you know, dis, dis, maladjusted or dis, I mean, and part of that's in your mind. And mm-hmm. I, and then my second kind of correlated question is where does trust play into this? Because it seems to me to be 
almost distrustful, which is not necessarily a good thing. Like we've just been talking about, that's what's caused some of the problems with COVID, but to be distrustful is to be the, the, um, discontent, the, 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 the nerd who's going to question. And so it seems like there's that tension there between we need to find trust. And yet it's the people who don't trust who might be the ones who are pushing the envelope for positive disintegration. Does that, does all that make sense? Cause there's a lot here that I don't fully understand. So yeah, no, I, I okay. think I, I think I get it. Stop okay. me if I'm going off okay. away from okay. that. But, but I mean, for me personally, um, this is not necessarily from the theory. I think the theory implies it, but whatever. Um, you have to have humility. I think um, there's another line um, from the the uh, the po- a famous poem: "The the best lack all conviction, and the worst are pa- full of passionate intensity." And I always really liked that line. Um, again, you have to ask yourself, wait. You, you're never satisfied that you you know the truth, but you get to enough uh, satisfaction that you are willing to take action, but you're always willing to reevaluate. So um, like, and I don't want to act like I know too much about QAnon. I read a book about QAnon that I was offered a review copy for Third Factor. And um, so I, I, and I don't remember the, so many details, but um, I read it and I'm like, well, okay, there seems like a lot of questions you could ask about these things. And, and of course, they've interviewed people who have left QAnon who did ask those questions and say, oh, these things are not lining up. So, so your only hope is to, is you, you ask a lot of questions and things break down, but you keep asking questions and then maybe you work your way out of it. But I don't ever want to give the, uh, the, you know, um, the implication that this is necessarily always going to have a happy end. That's one of the scary parts of being a questioner. Um, there are no guarantees. It's not like in school where you, well, I, now the kids don't even have textbooks, but you could flip to the back of the book and see if you got the math problem right. There, there isn't one of those. There's just all of us fighting over what is the course of, what best course of action. And we'll know if it's right or not, depending on how many people die. But even then you don't get mm-hmm. to test the counterfactual and see if even more people would have died if you had taken some other course of action. There's always going to be uncertainty. And so to some degree, we, we kind of have to live with that. But I, I hope one of the, what I, I hope positive disintegration will help people do. And these ideas of understanding your own overexcitable nature, your penchant for always asking questions and wanting to know for yourself is that you will apply it to yourself. You will understand that you could have delusions. And so you, you always are willing to change your mind presented with new information. That's, that's not just positive disintegration. That's, you know, so many liberal intellectual philosophies come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but what positive disintegration offers is that we are these sort of people who are just can't help it. We have to do this, but the maturing of that sort of person as they go through this process which is um, our, our, our logo at Third Factor is a phoenix. Um, now, we don't wanna keep having to burn ourselves down. Someone suggested to me that actually a better logo would have been a butterfly that starts off as a caterpillar and just totally dissolves itself and becomes a different sort of creature than that you know, disaffected nerd in high school and becomes this, this new thing because they went through this process. We didn't pick the butterfly because we didn't want it to be seen as like this little like girly thing that you know, whatever, not the girls are cool. I'm a girl, but we didn't want it only to be that. There's a little bit of branding here, but maybe a butterfly would have been a a better logo, but still the Phoenix has to burn down and then rise from the ashes. Um, 
and 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 part of that rising and reintegrating because you don't want to stay disintegrated forever. Dabrowski made that clear that there is a bad form of of overexcitability that you can be negatively maladjusted in a way that will just end in you having mental illness, you know, serious problems and and that is not healthy. So you you never want to fool yourself into thinking, oh yeah, I'm definitely positively maladjusted. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be arrogant. You have to be humble. And that, that I think is a good rule for life. Yeah. So uh, the other day I was listening to uh, Coleman Hughes, you know, the young African-American intellectual interview, um, a philosopher named Andy Norman. And um, Andy's ideas uh, about this are that our, our brains, our rational brains have sort of an an immune system that we have and that that we can get, there are certain parasites of the minds that can set in. But sometimes when um, people will overreact and um, to ideas, it's not that they're that they're, they're not subjecting ideas to scrutiny, that they're oversubjecting ideas to scrutiny. So he gives the example of the flat earthers. Um, the flat earthers are not lacking in um, in intellectual energy. They're they're working very hard, but something, some reason, this very bad idea that we have a flat earth somehow eludes their intellectual immune system, and they and they end up believing something that's very a very bad idea and quite honestly stupid for a long for a long period. Of time or forever. And I, and I think that, um, I think that's an interesting way to look at it as well, that there are, that, that ideas are like, are memes sometimes they're called, or idea viruses. They travel around and that we have immune systems and a healthy immune system is able to evaluate them on their rational capacity. And, and maybe some of us who, us naysayers, us uh, uh, positively maladjusted people, we might have a very energized, immune system and um and it's very hard to disable that immune system with a bad virus that everybody else might get or a lot of other people might get where we're always on the alert for ideas that that might um uh, that might be viral in nature but yet damaging to our health and maybe that's part of the function we're playing in society is we're the part of the immune system that does not get shut down in in society i don't know that's just speculative so what I would say is that I'm, I'm going to bring in another concept that I think is complementary to the theory of positive disintegration. It's not directly out of it. And other, uh, some experts in this field have also used this concept. And it's the idea of divergent and convergent thinking. And actually, um, this came up in training for applying creativity in intelligence analysis and in a class I actually took uh, sponsored by CIA and they've cleared my I wrote an article about it so I've published about it and I can share about this Um, but it is this idea and this is not just the CIA's idea they're just interested in it like so many other people who are trying to get at the truth of things but not go crazy with it right you want to hit that sweet spot because um, on September 10th 2001 the idea of terrorists flying planes into a building was maybe a crazy idea, but you wanted to predict it, you know, some time before that. Uh, and you needed people asking these sort of crazy ideas. And so, and this, this, this class that I'm talking about is basically a response to a recommendation in the 9-11 Commission report that people were not imaginative enough. And so in this class, we talked about the, the right proportion of these things called divergent and convergent thinking. And convergent thinking is getting the right answer, that answer that would be in the back of the book if you had a textbook, 
Um, and divergent thinking is the first stage of like a brainstorm where they keep telling you nothing is too, nothing is too silly an idea. Everything's on the table, just spit it out. And, and all these intelligence analysts who are trained to get that right answer and not to be silly are sitting there like awkwardly, not wanting to say anything that's too far away from the, the understanding that everyone shares. And, but you, you need to do that. You need to throw out there, maybe the earth is flat at that stage, you, you, wanna, you wanna know why it's not flat at the very least, you wanna know why that's a bad idea. And some of these ideas, as crazy as most of them are, some of them turn out to have a spark of genius. And you hear creative geniuses talk about this, I mean, people we, we see as geniuses say that um, you just need to have, it's not that they have better ideas, it's that they have more ideas. And so, mm that means they're more likely to have a good idea in that, you know, a, a shining gem buried in the, in the haystack. Right. And so I think some of these people who just keep asking questions beyond usefulness, they lack in convergent thinking where you take all those things you brainstormed and you start analyzing each one carefully and saying, is this one worth keeping? Maybe mm. not. May, mm -hmm. But maybe this one that is a brand new idea that we got to when we warmed up, when we started thinking crazy things, that one actually, the group together with all our combined different perspectives, and this is where the group matters. We don't just want the lone wolf. The group says that one has a spark in it that we can't really brush off. And what I learned in this, this creativity class was that um, and I was like the divergent thinker there. That is sort of me. That's why I went to become self-employed and do creative things. Artists tend to be more divergent thinkers, but intelligence analysts are convergent on, on average. And they told us that um, the ideal, I don't remember the exact numbers. It's in my article, the, the creative intelligence uh, agency, if you look it up at Third Factor. Um, but it was something like the the average DC professional all across all of these agencies and think tanks will do something. They did a study and found out that these people used convergent thinking inside the box, if you will, mm -hmm. something like 98% of the time and only practice this creative divergent thinking 2% of the time. Now, and, and they said, well, actually you wanna push that up. That's what we're doing in this class. We wanna be doing divergent thinking you know, 5%, they even told me aside because afterward, I'm like, I want to know more about this divergent thinking. They're like, you could do it even up to like 20% of the time. Wow. That's still one in five. You still need a lot more convergent thinking and convergent thinking as much as we creative people want to valorize thinking outside the box. It's really, it's harder work to do convergent thinking. That's where you have to really be serious and not be, have so much fun and playfulness. Mm. But there is a role for the playfulness, but it is in getting that balance right, because you can err too much in the other direction. And, and I don't know how to stop those people except to say, to teach them, like, you're part of a system and you want to get in balance. You don't want to go, it's not black or white. So, you know, Jesse, this is what I'm hearing from you. And I think this is really, really important when we talk about this cultural moment, something that's invaluable or just ingrained in this idea of positive disintegration is humility. I think that that like, I really picked that up where you can ask these out of, you know, outside of the box questions, but that you, that the humility is kind of the glue, if you will, between the divergent and convergent where, okay, now we're going to analyze 
these divergent ideas. And I think that's so fascinating for you because you are this creative who worked for the CIA. And so you in and of yourself are like kind of the perfect example, I think in my mind, when we're talking about this, a positive disintegration. I mean, you have kind of both sides of that. It's almost like two sides of the brain, right? I mean, it's like both sides of, and and with humility being that that bridge and that intersection. Would you, did I, did I hear that right? I mean, did would you think that that's an important, like one of the most important ingredients? I absolutely think that, that you have to have enough confidence to put your crazy ideas out there but then you have to be willing to take the feedback, which is sometimes painful and you are going to be wrong more than you're going to be right if you are trying to think of new things. But without humility, um, you will go off in, you know, off the deep end. So, yes. And I think like for the work that I've been doing lately, and I think with all of us here at the you know, Institute of Liberal Values, which all of us are a part of, uh, and also in discussions with, with Urshad Manji and Moral Courage, I mean, I think that that humility is really what is lacking in our in our conversations today. I think that's where we've gone off the rails and we won't, that humility is the most important foundation for viewpoint diversity. I completely agree with that. And that's why I love so much, I talked about this idea of subject object where you mm -hmm. treat yourself objectively, but try to treat others as a subject in themselves implies this sort of humility that 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 they have a worldview of their own and if you want to convince them you need to understand them you need you don't want to just force yourself on them you have to put yourself in their shoes and see where they're coming from and really spend your time trying to understand them otherwise why on earth should they trust you and and right. consider what you have to say right and then we get back to trust mm -hmm. yeah well, that's awesome okay now i've got to go read say his name Oh, Dombrowski, Dombrowski, as it's written, yeah. <laughs> Where it's, the stuff is really abstract and, and academic. One of Third Factor's missions is to make it accessible. We have some, some TPD 101 sort of articles out there, so. Um, I'm gonna be in touch with you about that because I wanna put that into some of our, our blog notes or you know the, the blog notes for this podcast so that people can dig in a little deeper. I will send you some of my favorite pieces. Awesome, thank you, Jesse. Well, Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I I'm really excited to reach out to the the sort of people in in your audience. So, thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show, and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website, where you can find what each of us is reading every week, different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say, hold my drink and the conversation gets real.